Father, we know that you are indeed shaping us, that while you love us just as, you, as we are, you don't leave us just as we are. You are continuing the work of sanctification in our lives, and often, and you do that through your guidance, through your Holy Spirit. You lead us away from temptation. You deliver us from the evil one, Lord, and you encourage us and turn our eyes to you that we might see that your kingdom and power and glory are indeed forever. So, Lord, we ask that you would go open our eyes to see this morning what you would have us to see in your word that shapes us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to the book of Romans as we continue our study in that quite remarkable letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. We've made it to chapter 12, and as Jonathan preached last week, chapter 12 kind of turns the corner as we spend 11 chapters kind of unpacking the nature of what is the gospel itself, what is the good news that Paul preaches, and we turn to chapter 12 and find out, well, what are we supposed to do with this information? If all of this stuff is true that you said, now what are we to do? And so we, be, we come to the point you might, you could say in some ways, of application. You know, as a, as a kid, I remember thinking about the Bible and, and wishing it were just a book that would just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just be a life, my life would be a lot easier. Of course, the Bible isn't quite like that, but there are some areas that do tell you what to do, and this is one of them. So, let's read it together. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? We're reading verses 3 through 8 of Romans chapter 12. I think I can see this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Well, again... Like we said, last week was kind of the great turning point in the book of Romans, where the first 11 chapter, he's just unpacking what is the good news all about? What does it mean? And now he turns to what's the impact of this good news upon our actual lives? What, what difference does it make in the lives of the people who are touched by this good news? Because it is, indeed, the gospel is talking about a life-altering event or a life-altering thing that happens in his people's lives. They are not the same after the application of the gospel than they were before the application of the gospel. As we mentioned, of course, God loves people just as they are. That's, you know, the Romans 5 passage about while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, but he doesn't ever, ever leave us where we are. He is doing the work of sanctifying us, shaping us, transforming us to be more and more like the image of Christ. That means 
the old is gone and the new has come, and our life is clearly different. Now we have to ask, well, what difference does it look like? What does this change look like? Well, the first thing, interestingly enough, that marks this new life of a believer is worship. It's worship. I find it interesting in Romans chapter 12, in those first couple of verses, as Jonathan was preaching on last week, that the thing he presents in view of God's mercies is to worship. Offer your bodies as a spiritual, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And that should be appropriate. That shouldn't be a great surprise when you think about if your eyes have been opened, if you've been listening to what Paul has been saying about what is the gospel and all the greatness that it involves. You know, from the, the description of a people who are once doomed to death, who are enslaved to their desires and passions that can never ever be satisfied apart from Christ, to now a people who have been rescued and redeemed out of that condition before the Lord and had their eyes open to the wonder and the glory of God and His kingdom that is being restored in the lives of His people, that should move us naturally, instinctively, to worship of this great God. Worship this great God. Anytime the people of God encountered God, it moved them to worship. But now worship begins to look a little bit different than it once did to the people of the Old Testament. If we think about worship in the Old Testament, it was always done at the temple. If you wanted to go worship, you would bring your animal to be sacrificed to the temple. You would give it to the priest. The priest would, uh, the, the priest would sacrifice it. They would bring it and put it on the altar. They would burn it up. And the, uh, the, the smoke was like a burning aroma being lifted up to the Lord that the, pre, the, uh, the person bringing the offering got to participate in experiencing that. So there was a very visible, tangible giving of something to the Lord as an act of worship. But in the time of the New Testament, things are not the same. We don't go to a temple anymore to worship. In fact, we recall Jesus' words when he encountered the woman at the well in Samaria, and he had something quite interesting to say about that. And I knew I would write it down somewhere and never be able to find it. There it is. In chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So that's the idea. That worship is now changing. It doesn't look like it did in the Old Testament. So what does it look like? Well, that's what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what it now looks like. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now that can be kind of a vague phrase. We don't really know, well, what does it mean to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice? I mean, I don't think I'm supposed to go to the priest and let him, you know, slit my throat and drain my blood out and burn me up on an altar. That's not what he means. Of course, you wouldn't be living if that were the case. So what does he mean? to offer your body as a living sacrifice, as our act of worship in response to the gospel. And that's what he's beginning to unpack in the rest of this application in this letter. What does it look like to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, let me tell you. And now he's launching into it. And that's where we come in this chap- in this verses with 3 through 8. He says this, uh, or in essence, what, what does it look like? Will we worship 
by using our gifts according to the measure of our faith for the building up of the church. That's how we might summarize these, first, these verses 3 through 8. What does it look like to offer your bodies? Well, it means that you are to worship by using your gifts according to the measure of faith God has given you for the building up of the church. That's your spiritual act of worship. That is how you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. So he begins to explain, how does that work? Well, the first thing we see him explaining is we have to begin by having a proper perspective of ourselves. We have to have a proper perspective of ourselves. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we are not our own, that we are now members of one another. I want to look, invite you to look at verse 3 to see how he starts this. I'm going to put these on so I can see better. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God is assigned. So it is interesting, the first aspect of understanding how do we do this is to not think of ourselves in the wrong way, not to think of too highly of ourselves. It may, it, we may agree with it, but it may seem like a strange place to start, but it's absolutely key, especially as we reflect on the gospel, because the gospel is telling you, guess what? You, don't, you can't take credit for any aspect of how you got to be where you are. Even the faith that you have, as he says right here, has been assigned to you by God. So don't grow prideful in a sense of who you are or think that the gifts that you have are somehow yours as though you're doing some favor to God by offering them. If they, and if they've been assigned to you, not just your faith, the measure of your faith, but the way that faith works itself out in the gifts that you've been given, if they've been assigned to you, then there must be some purpose for which God assigned them to accomplish. And that's spelled out in this section as he talks about it. How has he explained it? We'll look in verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We are members one of another. Your identity now is not the same as it once was. If God has given you faith and God has given you gifts, He gave them to you for a purpose, to be in consideration of thinking of yourself as a member of this body of which you are now a part. That's the whole idea. Now, kind of the best analogy I can think of is when you get married. Guys, girls, you remember what it was like before you were married? You could do whatever you wanted, when you wanted. You didn't have to consult anybody when you spent money. But now, when you got married, all of a sudden, all of that changed. Now you had to take someone else into consideration. You couldn't just do what you wanted. You couldn't just spend what you wanted. Well, you could, but it would perhaps do damage to the relationship. And that's hence the phrase that our culture has popularized, the old ball and chain, preventing me from doing the things that I want to do. It's this, but we know that marriage that we willingly go into marriage because we know intuitively that marriage is a good thing. And when you invest in your marriage by taking into consideration the way you spend your time and your energy and your money with regard to your spouse, well, that relationship has, a, has an opportunity to flourish and to become something that brings so much joy that you consider 
all of this putting aside of my own individualistic goals and desires, far worth it because of the of the fruit of the intimacy that I experience in this marriage. So if we think about, this is a little bit of what the person goes from, from being not identified with Christ to being identified with Christ. Now he is a part of a body of believers, and his life is no longer his own. The gifts that he has has to be used in consideration, not just of his, himself and his own individualistic goals and desires, but now in consideration of the body of which he is now a member. Now, I know that makes sense, but it's really a remarkable thing to think about. When you think about your time and your energy, even your money, you ought to be considering the body that God has made you a part of. What is going to, how can I use that to build up the body of Christ? How do I do that? to build up the body of Christ. So, the second point would be we must exercise our gifts for the body, kind of as we flow into that. And again, we, we see Paul's language again in verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So what's the implication here? Well, there's uh, many members, and they do not all have the same function. I just want you to stop and think about that. He's using this analogy of a body. The body has different parts. They're all one body, but they're all different parts. And, and all of those parts are needed. That's why we don't have ten hands, or ten feet, or two left feet, as the saying might go. Right? We have all these different varying parts of the body that have to function together. I mean, Paul goes on another place to say if every part was an eye, we wouldn't be able to hear. Right? If you don't have one part, there is something wrong with the body. It is not as healthy as it otherwise could be. If you decided one morning, if your foot just decided to think on its own and decide, I'm not getting out of bed this morning. Now, some of you might say, I wish mine would do that. <laughs> but the reality is you can't function if one part of your body decides to take a vacation that day. And he's not listening to the instructions that are coming from the head to tell it what to do. You know, there was a time uh, when Rhonda and I went whitewater rafting up in uh, Wyoming, and we were on the Snake River. It was June, but it was, the water was melted snow. I mean, it was very cold, even though it was warm outside. And as we were on, as we end, got to the end of that rafting trip, we were supposed to, as a group, and there was only five of us, lift up the, uh, the raft and put it back on the trailer. But as I'm standing in the water and I'm telling my arms to move, and they're not cooperating, I mean, I think hypothermia was beginning to set in, but it was really quite frightening. I am telling my arms to move, and they're not doing anything. That is a scary thing to be in that position. So they had to lift it up without me, probably looked at me as, I don't know what, how they looked at me. Uh, you know, get on the bus, and I couldn't stay awake, and I think that's when Rhonda finally started to get nervous for me. Uh, but if your body parts are not working, in essence, your abilities are hampered. You're not fully healthy, you're crippled. And that's the image that Paul uses for the church. He says, look, God has gifted you all differently, all differently, and he's brought you together to be members one of another, to form one body, so that when each part is working properly, the body is functioning as a healthy body. It's able to grow, it's able to mature. But when part of it is not 
working in concert with the other parts, it's crippled. It's not dead, but it's certainly not able to do all the things that it otherwise could do. That's the picture here that we have being members with different functions. We're all part of the body of Christ, and we all have an important role to play with respect to the rest of the body, taking into consideration the growth of the body. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of a church. If, if we think of ourselves as a collection of individuals that just happen to be together in one place one time a week, and the rest of our lives we, we're concerned with our time and energy and everything to go and do our own thing, there really is nobody. It's no, it's, it sounds funny, doesn't it? Nobody is functioning. <laughs> there is no church. If you have gifts and talents and treasures and energy and you use them all for other things, there really is no church functioning at all. And I would suggest to you that most of the churches across the country are severely crippled. You know, the typical saying is, it's not just true perhaps for churches, but many organizations, they say what, that, that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. If you think about that in terms of your own physical body, what if only 20% of your body was functioning in trying to get all the work done? It's really hard to do. And those, those parts of your body that are forced to do things that they're not gifted to do, it strains them and it stresses them. And guess what? They get burned out. Do we ever see people burned out in the churches today? Why do you think that is? Because a lot of the body is not participating in the life of the body. And it has an effect, a health effect on the body. Now look, I don't mean to bear the bad news. I'm just telling you how it is. And this is what Paul is talking about. And, and, and remember, all of this, the using of your gifts for the, for the health and well-being of the body of which you have been made a part is how we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, as spiritual worship in response to God, in response specifically to the mercy of God, the gospel of God. We are to do that. So what are you to do? Well, we recognize this body. Let's look again at verse 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, here's his, here's his, here's his imperative. Let us use them. Let us use them. We should all underline that in our Bibles. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You are to use the gifts according to the measure that God has given you. And he lists a bunch of a variety of gifts here with the implication that these are spread across the whole body in differing degrees to different people. Now, he's not saying that you have one gift, and you have one gift, and you have another gift. We all have a variety of gifts in the plural. We may not just have them all to the same measure of one another. So that means that you know, when someone calls you and says, hey, I need a volunteer in the nursery work, you say, well, I don't have that gift. Guess what? Every one of you has that gift to some degree. So it just may mean some don't do it as well or perhaps as often. It's not their, their perhaps thing. But it doesn't mean they can't do it. I can't tell how many times 
like, especially, I remember in Oklahoma when my wife was trying to coordinate children's ministry, she called, you know, these, these adult people who were experienced, you know, grand, grandparent figures, so they'd had experience both with their own children and their grandchildren, calling them up and saying, hey, we need some, we're looking, we're short of nursery volunteers. Can you help out? Oh, I'm sorry, that's not my gift. You have so much experience in that area. How can you say that's not your gift? Use them in proportion to your faith. Now, we could get practical and say, how does God give people gifts? I mean, He does it in a variety of ways. And when we think about the Holy Spirit breathing on people, empowering them, but it's also true the sovereign God has put you in positions in your life to develop things, skills that you might not otherwise have. So we don't always have to think in some supernatural terms. If God is sovereign over all of life, then you have skills and experiences that are unique to you because of God's sovereign plan to give them to you. And our calling in response to the mercy of God is to offer ourselves as, spirit, as living sacrifices, building up the body of Christ. Now, you say, well, what does that look like? How do I know? How do I know what that is? Well, I want to turn to another place where Paul kind of expounds this same idea in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there is this structure that God has established it's, it's not just a church in the nebulous sense of all believers. It has structure in which there are, there are uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers specifically appointed by the sovereign work of God to equip the saints for the work of ministry that we are to submit ourselves to for instruction and training and direction so in other words, as we think about, well, I'm a part of the body. I'm supposed to be listening to what the head is telling me. How do I know what the head is telling me? Well, he's put in place a structure with these officers and these leaders that are there to guide you and to equip you. That's how it is. And what ultimately happens is there is through this process, through these teachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles, there is a renewing of the mind, as he talks about in Romans in verse 2 above. There's a renewing of the mind so that you will be able to discern what is the will of God. His perfect and pleasing and holy will. That renewal of the mind so that you'll know how you as part of the body is meant to function is by listening and participating to these officers that are in the church. Because the church is God's, God's thing. It is God's organism. It is God's creation. God's invention. It wasn't man's. And I think we forget that. I think we evaluate the leaders and think, well, I don't always agree with them, so therefore I'll be cautious if I obey them. Well, guess what? There is not a single leader on this earth who's in a church as an officer who is always right. And I don't think that surprised God. Something tells me. So I don't think we can give a valid excuse to God. Well, I, I would, God, listen to you, except you know, my leaders, they sometimes get it wrong. I'm not sure I can really follow them. And God says, oh my gosh, I didn't know it. Okay, I'll give you an excuse. I don't think that's how God works. I think God knows what he's doing. 
to help in the renewal of the mind, to help us participate by using our gifts. Now, maybe some of you don't know what your gifts are. And if you don't know what your gifts are, it's because you've never exercised them, or at least not enough to know. That means you need to get out there and experiment. You need to get out there and volunteer for different things. You need to find out where is it that God has given you a zeal? Where is it that God has given you a, a spirit of generosity? Where is it that God has equipped you? And you may be surprised to find different things out. I remember hearing a, a story years ago. You know, we, we had, after we participated in that fanning the flame exercise, um, we had a, a team of people who were helping people to identify their spiritual gifts. And I remember one story of, of a young lady who, this very intelligent young lady with, you know, Ph.D. in mathematics, finding out one of her spiritual gifts was working with children. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, she never would have guessed on her own. Here is this brilliant person who you would think would apply that and finds out that she, she's gifted to work with kids. At, at Liberty that meets here on Tuesdays and, or Mondays and Wednesdays, we, we have different parents participating in training and teaching these kids. And we have one uh, young mom who is literally a rocket scientist. But guess what she has a gift for? Teaching kids. Amazing how that can work out. So we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so let us use them. For what purpose? Well, not for your own individualistic efforts and goals and desires, which, by the way, is what most of us do. We use our gifts. We just don't think of them as spiritual gifts. We think of them as belonging to us, something that we've attained, something that we've earned, and so therefore we think we have the right to go spend them any which way we want on our individualistic uh, uh, goals and desires. And the church we find is peripheral. We think of the church as something that supports me in my pursuit of my own individualistic goals and desires, rather than I have gifts that I was meant to be supporting of the church. What was the Kennedy's famous phrase? Ask not what? There you go. Ask what you can do for your church. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. Now, I want to turn back, because this is not something new, of course, with the New Testament. The Old Testament talks about this too. Uh, because a lot, often what happens, we use our gifts and skill sets to go and serve our own ambitions, and the church may or may not get what's left over. And that can be problematic. When the Old Testament, uh, when we come towards the end of the Old Testament and read some of those minor prophets, they have something to say about that. So I want to look at the prophet Malachi in chapter 1. He talks about it like this. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And if we ourselves are the living sacrifice, and the way our living sacrifice is given to the Lord in worship is by the using of our gifts, if all the body of Christ, the church is getting is the leftovers of your gifts, 
You're always going to be too tired to do stuff. The thing is that I don't think anyone's here lazy. I think they just give their lion's share, their first share, to all their personal ambitions. And if they have any left over, kind of like the person who's offering his offering, well, I have some blind and lame animals left over. I'll offer them to the Lord. He can check off the box to say, I did it. But it's not a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's not a demonstration of faith in the Lord. Because here, we think about why we do it. We understand why we do it because we, we, we feel like, especially with regard to our work, I've got to work to earn enough money to make a living for my family. And if I take some of my time and energy away from doing that, I'm going to make less money and we're going to be in more trouble. I'm already in trouble, so I need to give it all to there. But what's interesting is the Lord has something to say about that too. He says this, if I can find it. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And he goes on to explain the reason why your bags seem to have holes in them. It's because you are not giving your first fruits to the Lord. It's not because you're not working hard enough. And that's the irony. We think it's because we're not giving enough to our work. He's saying it's you've given the wrong thing to your work, and therefore I have caused your bags to be empty. I have caused your, your fields to not produce as much, your animals to not provide as much. If, if you would trust me, he says, Put me to the test and to see if I will not fill your fields with bounty. You see, it's not our efforts ultimately that are providing for you, although we think it is. It is the Lord Himself. How do I know? Because all of the earth belongs to the Lord. I mean, by the way, this isn't just true for your, your, your gifts and the use of your time. It's true for your money as well, which, by the way, is one of the gifts he mentions. With generosity, you know, contribute much. I have to look to see how he says it, but he's talking about the use of our money. Malachi has something to say about that too, by the way. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open the, will I, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So we have this idea. You've been given gifts. You've been given time. You've been given money. But guess what? None of those things were yours to begin with. They were gifts. That's why we ought not to think too highly of ourselves to think that somehow these are all of ours. They're not. They belong to the Lord, and He has apportioned them to you. He has assigned them to you. Why has He assigned them to you? Not so that you can build up your own houses and paneling, but so that you can build up the body of Christ. Now, He doesn't say, give me 100% of it, by the way. He just says, give me 10% of it. Just give me the first ten, not the last ten. So it's not as though he's requiring so much of you that you can't 
experience things outside of the body. He's not saying that. But he's saying, look, ultimately your identity is with this body. It makes sense that we would invest in it to be healthy, just like your marriage. It makes sense if you want to enjoy life, to have joy in life, if you're married, to invest well in that marriage. Otherwise, it's not going to go well for you, not just the body, by the way. So, how should you spend your money? Well, you take out the word your and insert the word God's, and that might help answer the question better. How should you spend God's money? Is really more accurate. And he gives us instructions. He says, give me the first 10%. It is interesting because he could have said, you know what, I'm only going to give you that 90% so you don't have to give me anything. But he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to give you this much knowing that 10% of that you're going to give to me. So it wasn't as though he thought, ah, oh, I'm not going to give them enough if they give some to me. He said, no, this is, what, this is what I'm going to give you so that you can give me 10%. I know we talked about this before, but if you think about if it's all God's money, and he tells you how to spend it, and you don't spend it that way. I mean, can you imagine if your, your money you put in the bank, and you tell the banker how you want to spend it, you write checks to something, and he chooses, I'm not going to send it to that. I'm going to keep it and use it for my own thing. I mean, you would, you would, take, you would take him to court because he's not being the steward of your money that he is supposed to be. Well, the same is true with us. It's all God's money. We're just stewards. And it's not just money. It's our gifts. It's our time. It's our talent. It's our energy. It's our passions. Now, how do we do, do this? How are we to do this? I don't want to lay this on you as though there's some duty I've got to do. No, it's always in view of the mercy of God. Remember, that's how he starts this chapter. Therefore, in view of the mercy of God, live this way. In view of the mercy of God. What has the mercy of God done for you? Well, if you remember, we were on a path doomed to die doomed to an eternal punishment. We were enslaved to desires that could never be satisfied with the thing we're trying to satisfy them with. We will always have a sense of discontent and that longing. That was our condition, and the Lord redeemed us out of that. He put us on a new path, a path towards eternal glory. He opened our eyes to see the wonders of His love to a people who didn't deserve it. He gave you a new identity. He sent His Son to pay the price that was required for you to go from death to life. And He who gave His own Son, how much more will He not give you all things if we would just exercise faith by committing our gifts that He's given to us and our money that He's given to us in the manner that He's instructed us as our living sacrifices, as our spiritual worship in view of the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you open our eyes to see the wonders of your mercy, that it might really transform the way we live in such a way that brings so much blessing to us and blessing to the world that we would be amazed if we would just trust you. Lord, help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.